So, we finally get to verse 19. <laughs> yeah, pay no attention to what the slide says there, 18 through 23. We've been there for, what, three weeks now? Four weeks now? Yeah. So, uh, when you take this verse and you take verse 18... Uh, there have been a lot of different controversies and a lot of different disagreements about what these verses mean. Um, as you turn to chapter 16 and find verse 19, I would also like you, now I'm going to make you do some work, all right? Flip to chapter 20 of John's Gospel and take a piece of your bulletin or a piece of paper, a bookmark of some variety. I want you to mark chapter 20 of John's Gospel. And then I want you to mark chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel. John 20, Matthew 18. So we're going to be doing some flipping between pages here. Um, Last week we talked about the statement that Jesus made. Uh, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, The foundation, that Petra that Jesus was talking about, was the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as represented by Peter. And he said that the gates of hell, the entrance of hell, would not prevail. So as long as the church is obedient to Christ, submitted to the Holy Spirit, focused on and built on the Word of God, then the power of sin is not going to stand against us. Even though, pay close attention now, even though when you look outside the walls of the church, it's hard to believe that we're standing against the power of sin and death. Because the more you look, the more you see. The good news is, Jesus is talking in the permanent sense that it's not going to prevail even though there may be times where it looks like we're going to be overrun. This next verse, like I said, is another source of conflict because it deals with the responsibility of the church towards people and how we handle the sin and the people that we encounter along the way. So, now that I've made it all the way through all that, I'm going to invite you to stand as I read God's Word this morning. I'm going to begin with verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come once again to this word, I pray that we would be faithful in looking at your word and understanding what it means. Keep us from trying to fit our preconceived notions into your word and help us to be molded by what your word actually says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat.
So, where there is a controversial verse, there are varied interpretations of that verse. Um, when I originally wrote this, I, I, I was a little bit harsh. I said some of these varied interpretations uh, could be considered harebrained and twisted and warped and, and not quite right. Uh, and then it dawned on me as I went further through that I could be calling some interpretations that you all hold by those names, and I don't want to do that. So, um, I'm getting rid of those words, harebrained and twisted. I will tell you that there are a lot of different interpretations of this verse. There are some who take this phrase, this this particular uh, passage here in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. They take that to be talking about the demonic. You may have heard this before. This is, this is where people get the idea that if you bind a demon here on earth, if you speak against a demon, if you cast a demon out here on earth, then they have lost all power and they will be bound in the spiritual world. Okay. Yep, it's out there. So, the problem with that is that that necessarily means that if you loose the demonic here on earth, then you are loosing them in the spiritual realm. That causes us some issues, right? Because that's not our that's that's not our job. That's that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Okay? So, there are people who are either part of the word of faith movement or those who've been influenced by the teaching of that movement, and I will tell you the influence of the word word of faith folks, the name it and claim it folks is far and wide, and it covers a lot of the evangelical world. To include Baptists, to include Methodists, to include all kinds of different denominations, because it's an appealing thought process. But those who've been influenced by this this particular movement here take this to mean that our words have power. Okay? Now... A good deal of my youth was spent in a house with a guy who was a salesman. And I remember him taking all of these different seminars and stuff, learning how to be a better salesman, and there is some truth to the fact that you can influence the outcome of your business based on the words that you speak. If I go to work and the only thing that I tell my instructors and my students is that they're worthless, no good, stupid, can't do anything how is their productivity going to be? Exactly. It's going to be horrible, right? On the other hand, if I go and I give them accurate, positive reinforcement, then I'm going to get better productivity out of them. But if you take that idea and you try to push it over God's Word here, then what you wind up with is this idea that if we speak a blessing here on earth, then somehow, some way. God is obligated to make that blessing happen. And if we speak a curse, or if we withhold a blessing from somebody here on earth, then God is therefore obligated to withhold that blessing or bring that curse. 
I have a problem with that. I can't obligate God to do anything. As a matter of fact, the only thing that my actions have ever obligated God to do is to punish them because of His holiness. Some, like I said, will go so far as to say this applies to curses. If you speak a curse against someone here on earth and that curse is real in the heavenly realm and the appropriate thing to do with the curse then would be to bind it to... To, I bind that curse in the name of Jesus. You ever heard somebody say that? I bind that cold in the name of Jesus. I bind that migraine headache in the name... What? What, what does that even mean? The idea here is that my words here on earth as a believer have some kind of spiritual power to influence the heavenly. In the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, this verse is what authorizes the apostles to pronounce absolution on people. So in, the, in Peter's capacity, as, as the Roman Catholic Church holds, in Peter's capacity as the first bishop of the Roman Church, then he had the ability to pronounce that a person's sins were well and truly forgiven. That he was speaking for Christ. I'm a little twitchy with that. Um, As an extension, as the church later developed their their doctrine, uh, they then said that uh, the bishop or the priest had the ability to declare that a person had received enough righteousness transferred into their account so as to get them out of hell or to get them more quickly through the period of purging in purgatory. Uh, The apostles could legitimately forgive a person's sins. What's the problem there? (laughs) There you go. The only person who can forgive somebody's sins is the person that has been sinned against, right? So now I can forgive you if you sin against me. If you cut me off on the highway and then we meet up in a parking lot and you say, yo, dude, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I can forgive that, right? But if it's a sin, the only person who can forgive that is the one who's been sinned against. That would be God. I can't forgive a person's sins. And what's worse is they say that because of this, the apostles could withhold a person's forgiveness. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So if you hold back that forgiveness, they're stuck. Wow, who's sovereign here? Now, like I said, some of these interpretations might be a little bit strange compared to what we're used to, right? Now, let me ask you, for a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard this interpretation as far as it applies to the demonic realm? No? Maybe? A little bit? Okay, how about that that speaking a blessing or speaking a curse? How many of you have ever heard that? Okay? I know people who will not speak the words, I have a cold. 
Because if they say they have a cold, that makes it a reality. They will say, I have the symptoms of a cold. Okay, well, if I have a, if, if I have a pet that has four legs and a long tail and walks around and meows and purrs, I have a cat. Me saying it doesn't make it any more real, right? I have a pet with the symptoms of a cat. There's a problem if it's a dog. (laughs) Some of these sound kind of odd. But you can see how they all fit into what the text reads. There's some ambiguity in there. There's some, especially the, the Roman Catholic, that whatever the apostles bind is bound, and whatever they loose is loosed. There's another aspect of that doctrine in which what, what the Roman Catholic Church says is that this is the, the keys to the treasury of merit. All of the righteousness earned by Christ and the saints is stored there. And that those who are in the apostolic succession, so the, the priests and the bishops who have come after the apostles, have the keys... And they can literally unlock the treasury of merit and dispense righteousness to people. There was a holiday that was celebrated on Tuesday. And I'm not talking about the one that gets kids candy. I'm talking about the celebration of the Reformation. The root cause of the Reformation of the church, the root cause of the Protestant Reformation, when when Martin Luther was so bothered by what the church was doing, has to do with this passage. Because what they were doing was they were selling the merit. (laughs) They They were selling indulgences. If you made a big enough donation to the church, then you could get Uncle Bob out of purgatory early. And that bothered Luther, which is good. I think it should have. So this this idea here, I think we need to come back to the text with some basic foundational rules. Now, what have I told you is rule number one for the interpretation of Scripture? Context, context, context. Just like rule number one when it comes to real estate. Location, 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 right? Context, context, context. You cannot take a verse, pull that verse out of the pages of Scripture all on its own and build a doctrine on that. That's horrible. That's abuse. So what we have to do is we have to look at the immediate context of this verse. If we just look at verses 13 through 20 which many of your Bibles probably have grouped together as one paragraph or one subsection, maybe with a little heading over top of it, just to tell you what it's about. Okay? If you just look at that, we start out with Jesus asking the disciples, who does the world recognize me as? Not because he's looking for his ego to be boosted, but because he is about to ask the disciples one of the biggest questions of their eternal life, not their temporal life. When he asks them, and they give, Peter gives this 
this confession of faith, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then said that the foundation of the church is the foundation of the apostles. And we looked at it in context, in the context of Scripture, the apostles and the prophets. The Word of God is the foundation upon which the church is built. We talked about it this morning in Sunday school. You cannot have the gospel without the Word. You cannot speak the gospel without speaking words. You have to have language. You have to have words, whether they be written down to share with somebody or spoken, in order for a person to become part of the church. This is the foundation of the church. Against the foundation, Jesus said that the power of death and hell will not win. I've read the end of the book. It doesn't. Death and hell do not win. Jesus does. And then it's upon that statement that Jesus says He would give the keys to the kingdom of heaven to those who were of the foundation, to the apostles. So let me ask you a question. What are keys used for? Opening doors. Locking doors. Lock boxes. Safety deposit boxes. I've got a firebox at my house with some important documents in it, right? We use keys to either lock things in or lock things out. So if we understand the keys to be the means by which the apostles and those who are spiritually descended from them could dispense God's grace, then we can understand the Roman Catholic position, right? If those keys are what you can unlock God's grace with, and you have the ability to unlock it, open the box, take some out, give it to somebody, and lock the box back up. Except, that doesn't quite fit context. Because right before that, what did Jesus say in verse 18 would not prevail? The gates of hell. Oh, isn't that something else that we lock and unlock? Right? Why would Jesus all of a sudden say something about a doorway, a gate, and then move on to talking about a treasure box? That doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense to me. If he's talking about an entrance to hell, then wouldn't he be talking about the entrance to heaven? Okay. So I have a problem with that interpretation of the treasury of merit. I have a problem with that. Not just because of the lack of context, because it comes from a, a faulty understanding of the righteousness of Christ. <laughs> See, we understand, according to Scripture, that when a person comes to faith in Christ, that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to our account. It's, it's a complete balance transfer. We get all of Jesus' perfect righteousness for our account. And He takes upon us, uh, upon Himself, all of our unrighteousness. But because He has so much righteousness, He's still got a positive balance too. Right? It's not a liquid that gets poured into a tank. He doesn't, he doesn't just, you know, fill up our righteousness tank until we need a top off. It's a transfer. 
However, I will admit I'm a human being and my understanding of the context could be a pretty weak argument if you only take it that far. So I have to move from the immediate context that that verse is in to the greater context of the Gospel of Matthew. We might find something in Matthew's Gospel that sheds a little bit of light on the question. Right? Remember where I told you to put a piece of paper in Matthew chapter 18? Take a look at Matthew chapter 18 right now. Specifically starting in verse 15. I'm going to tell you that Matthew 18, 15 through 20 are terribly misused and underused by the church. Yes, I mean underused. Churches do not practice these passages. Churches would rather kick stuff under the rug and act like the church in Corinth than to actually do what Jesus tells us to do in a situation like this. In verse 15, we see the instruction that Jesus gives the church for dealing with a brother or sister who sins against you. It's widely accepted as how we should handle someone in the church who commits a public sin. I have some issues with that too, but we'll talk about that when we actually get to this passage. Okay? You know how this goes, right? It kind of reads like a flowchart. See if the flowchart actually works. Yay! The church discipline flowchart. Up here in the corner. I don't want that pointer. I want the laser pointer. Laser. Has your brother sinned? Yes. Then we'll follow those steps. No. Work the planks in your own eye. You worry about your own business, right? What if they do? If they do, then you go to them by yourself. You talk to them. Did they repent? Yes. You've won a brother. No. Take two or more witnesses. Like I said, it reads like a flowchart. It's like every flowchart I've ever read in my life. If they repent, yes, you've won a brother. If not, present to the church. Do they repent? Yes, you've won a brother. If not, treat them like an unbeliever. That's Matthew 18, 15 through 19, right there. That's the whole body of it. But if you look a little bit more closely at verse 18, let me read verses 15 to 18 for you. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whoa! It's deja vu all over again. It's exactly the same thing that he said in verse 19 of chapter 16. This binding and loosing 
must have something to do with forgiving sins. But I don't think it has to do with the treasury of merit. In chapter 18, the believer isn't forgiving sins, but calling another person to repentance, right? God's the one who forgives the sins. We call our brother to repent when they do something that crosses the clear-cut line of sinful behavior. Notice I said clear-cut line of sinful behavior. If I go to a brother and sister in concern, a brother or sister in concern, hey, when I drove past your house, I saw you getting out of your car and you looked like you were staggering, almost as though you were intoxicated. Can I help you get through something? Can I help you get away from that? drunkenness, can I help you get back to a place where you need to be, I am presenting them with the opportunity to repent. I'm not beating them up, and I'm not the one who says, repent or die. As Paul says in Corinthians, we have a ministry of reconciliation. We need to be seeking that opportunity to reconcile with them and to reconcile them to Christ. What happens to one who may be a member of the church who doesn't repent? They might be removed from the visible church and treated as an unbeliever. What do we do with unbelievers? We share the gospel with them. (laughs) We love on them. We minister to them. We share the gospel with them. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Anybody who's not nodding their head right now may have a discussion after a business meeting. I'm just saying, yes, that's what we're supposed to do with unbelievers, is we're supposed to share the gospel with them. The power of the church lies in basically three things. First, the foundation, which is the Word of God, period. Right? The apostolic and prophetic word from God is the foundation of the church. Second is the cornerstone of our faith. The one who died for our sins and lives for our righteousness. So there's two pieces of the church. The third is the power that is in the believers who make up the church. Did you catch that? Looked at it last week. We are living stones being built into the church. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the charge to confront one another. We have the charge to bring one another to the point of recognizing that we need to repent. We're supposed to do it lovingly. We're supposed to do it gently We're supposed to do it in a manner that does not make me out to be better than you. We're supposed to do it without that two-by-four sticking out of our eye. Right? That's literally the word Jesus used. Plank. Like walk the. We're supposed to do it in a way that shows that we love one another. We have the commission to go out and to make disciples. 
We can't do that without the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. We can't do that without the foundation, which is the Word of God. If you don't see how this ties together with binding and loosing, I want to ask you to turn to that other bookmark that I gave you. John chapter 20. Once you get to John 20, find verse 23. Now, John's gospel is probably my favorite of the four gospels, depending on what my purpose is. Because I like Matthew. Who doesn't like Matthew? Right? Um... I like Matthew because he presents to us the Christ. I like Mark because he doesn't get bogged down in all the weeds of the genealogy and stuff. It's very short, sweet, and to the point presentation. As a matter of fact, it's basically Peter's confession of faith. I like Luke because he does get bogged down in the details. And it's Luke that has given us so much archaeological confirmation of the gospel. But John is so deep and so full and so rich and yet so easy to read, it is probably my favorite. So if you're looking here at John chapter 20, in verse 23, actually this, this end of uh, chapter 20, um, as a matter of fact, we actually looked at verses 24 through uh, 29, this morning, this is basically the equivalent of the Great Commission in John's Gospel. In, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, right? And I will be with you. But here at the end of John's Gospel, Starting in verse 19, and I'll, I'll get to verse 23 eventually. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, gave them all a heart attack, and said, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. By the way, for those of you that were listening this morning to our Sunday school lesson, notice Jesus did the same thing for them that he did for Thomas. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, pay attention, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Hmm, that sounds a lot like what Matthew said, right? What you bind here is bound there. What you loose here is loosed there. As the bearers of the gospel, as, as Jesus just appeared to these guys, what was the last bit of verse 22? Receive the Holy Spirit. Why? 
Why do we have the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit called in the New Testament? The Comforter? The Helper? Right? As a matter of fact, Jesus, the disciples are like, so are you going to stay with us for a while? Jesus says, no, it's better for you that I go. Why? Because my Father is sending the Helper. What do we need help with? Gee, I don't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a yes or no question, right? What do we need help with? Yes. When it comes to the Christian life, we need help with everything. Particularly with dealing with other people. Particularly with dealing with sinners. And, and by the way, who are sinners? Again, yes. If they have a pulse, they're a sinner. So how do we deal with them? We deal with them with the help of the Holy Spirit. And if we forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. Now, is is Jesus all of a sudden saying, you have the power to forgive? Yes, He is. Look at the end of verse 22. What is the power they have to forgive? It's the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Oh, by the way, that's part of the triune God. Guess what believers do have the power to do? Because we have God indwelling us. I'm not saying that I can go tell somebody their sins are forgiven arbitrarily. But I am telling you that when I share the gospel with somebody and that person repents and demonstrates faith in Jesus Christ, I can say with full, utmost assurance, your sins are forgiven. I can. I don't have to say, I don't think, maybe you should be okay. We talked about doubt this morning in Sunday school. The biggest problem I have is with doubting whether my own sins have been forgiven. I shouldn't have if I have the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples, the apostles, now, as Jesus is preparing to send them out, were told that their words would be the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Their words that we have here, that we carry with us, when we take the Bible wherever we go, their words are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. How do we open the gate to the kingdom of heaven? We have to use words. We have to share the gospel. It is not enough. Please understand what I'm saying. It's not enough for me just to live a good life. It's not enough for me to be a teetotaler. One of, my, one of my favorite high school teachers was a teetotaler. Never touched alcohol. 33 years old at the time, still lived in his parents' house, took care of mom and dad, didn't cuss, didn't drink, didn't go out with a whole bunch of women. Now, when I was 16, 17 years old, I thought he was a weirdo but he became a very good friend. At that point in his life, to the best of my knowledge, he did not have a relationship with Christ. He lived the life. He walked the walk. He looked like he had everything all together. I don't know that he did. I don't know that he didn't. I know at that point I didn't. It's not enough for me to live 
an upright life if I can't tell people why? I've got to be able to express the gospel. 